Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 236 of Yoga Land. I am back with Jason today. Hi, Jason. Hello. Last week was our first week back, and I mean, can you believe we used to crank these out? I used to crank these out every week for years on end. I can believe it. Because it just feels like, wow, we're doing this again. Remember how every weekend I was in another city? <laughs> yeah, that's true. We've gotten, we've gotten so soft. So soft. Anyway, last week we had kind of a meta discussion, which I really enjoyed so much about education and the, the, the sort of the values that you're trying to instill as an educator. This week, we thought we would be more nuts and bolts and talk about sequencing insights that you have. And and this is really apropos of right now because you are about to do your your fall sequencing workshop online. And that is on sale today. Yeah, you know, sequencing is really the it ties into last week's conversation well because sequencing is in so many ways where we deliver the education and the experience that we're delivering, right? Right. Sequencing is like where you enact the teaching, the postures. Um, it's where you communicate what you're trying to communicate it as a teacher. In so many ways, you know, you talk a lot about content, right? To me, when you talk about content, the first thing I think of from a yoga teaching perspective is sequencing. Mm-hmm. Like sequencing is our content. Mm-hmm. It's our 30-minute content or our 45-minute content or our 60-minute content, whatever the environment, whatever the duration of the class is, it's the flow of content. It's how we decide what we are going to teach. It's what we teach, and it's the order that we teach it in. Mm -hmm. So sequencing to me is probably the single most important sub skill mm-hmm. of being a yoga teacher. I also think it's one of the most stressful. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most stressful because so many of us, we just think that we have to write a new song every week and we have to write a song that no one has ever, ever, ever heard. Like we think in every sequence that we ever teach, we have to set the yoga world on fire. Yeah, we have I we have the same issue with our Insta, everybody, I mean, when I say our Everyone has the same issue with Instagram too. Right. And even I have that issue. Right. Right. So right. very and relatable. Totally relatable. And so I have the fortune of like a really big rear view mirror because I've been teaching for a long time. So, so much of what I have evolved as a teacher with regards to sequencing is from trial and error. Mm-hmm. You know, it's from it's from actual experimentation. It's not a memorized process that was passed on to me and now I'm passing it on to others. Like my sequencing structure and the tips that I'm going to provide, they feel like they've evolved from being in the yoga laboratory or the kitchen over 25 years. Before we dive in, I wanted to say that if you do, I have to do this at the top of the episode. Otherwise people will be like, how do I go sign up if I want to sign up? If you want to sign up for the sequencing workshop or if you want to learn more about it, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash sequencing. And then another thing before we dive into your thoughts slash tips, I, I don't know, this just came to mind for me. So I first met you as a teacher when you were in your late 20s 
And I know, I know. And I remember being really struck by what a great sequencing teacher you were. I I just remember feeling like your class was unique in in that, um, in the pacing, in the approaches to vinyasa modifications. What would you say is like the foundation of your sequencing style? Oh, I think there's three things that come up for me. Like there's three things that just like super quickly pop to my head. The first thing is probably the most important thing, which is my body, my body type and the injuries that I have sustained in my body, which means I can't just, I can't spend 60 minutes throwing my body in nonsensical planes of movement. Mm. Like I have to be specific and progressive. So for example, like, even if I want to do a halfway decent Urdhva I need a methodical preparation for Urdhva So in some ways, I don't want to say the weakness of my body. I don't have a weak body, but I the- the Vulnerabilities. Yeah, the vulnerabilities and then just the restrictions from so many years of contact sports. So the restrictions and the vulnerabilities make it so that if I want to do Pachimottanasana well, or Janushashasana, or Urdhvadanyarasana, I'm not even picking like outlandish poses, right? I have to develop a progressive and specific sequence towards those ends, or, or they don't work, mm-hmm. right? The challenges that my body has presented me in asana has always been a significant asset for me as a teacher. Right. Because it's required me to understand how to progress and develop. Another thing that comes up is the way in which I've been taught, right? And there's kind of three things that come up. And we were talking about two of these three things last week, which is I have a background in Ashtanga, although I left that a really long time ago. I have a background in Iyengar yoga. And my main teacher, although I haven't seen him in a really long time, is Rodney Yee. And that combination of things, I think in the Iyengar world, it's so specific and methodical, sometimes to the point of, you know, being tedium. T- tedious. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. Yeah, but no, it's just that's that you, world. Iyengar people. It's that I world, love you. right? But in that world, you don't like nothing is random because that world is really focused on, I don't know if they would say it this way, but skill development. You know, postural development, skill development, yoga development as a subject. And so you're not really like in there for 90 minutes at a time to feel good, although hopefully you feel good, but you're in there to learn and develop specific skills in the same way that you would in any other subject matter class. Like you wouldn't go to like a piano class just to like exercise your fingers. You would go there to learn a discipline, right? And so I think what I've taken from the Iyengar world is being specific. And one of the the keys that I'm going to give you soon is the working backwards from something. You know, it's like working backwards from a technique or working backwards from a posture or working backwards from a concept, right? Having a point of anchor to develop content around, right? And, And kind of tied to the first thing I said, which is working with Rodney. And the thing about Rodney was... He didn't, I don't want to say tolerate, that's not the right word. He didn't look favorably favorably upon if you weren't able to do something, you just kind of hanging out. So if you couldn't do 10 minutes in headstand, which was 
you know, happen pretty much every Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. If you couldn't do 10 minutes in headstand and 10 minutes in shoulder stand, that's okay. But it wasn't the beginning class and you weren't a beginner, which means if you couldn't do that duration, you had to fill up the rest of that time with things that were relevant, right? So if I came down after three minutes in headstand, I had seven minutes not to like read a book or feel bad for myself, but I had to figure out, okay, what is seven more minutes in a headstand-like position, right? So then it's down dog with the head supported, wide-legged standing forward fold with the head supported, Pachimotanasana with the head supported, child's pose with the head supported, done. You know what I mean? So it's like I was required in working in that community to be a very good problem solver Again, for, for I, I don't want it to be misinterpreted, but for my limitations, uh-huh. you know? Yep. And in some ways, I think that was one of the reasons that I was one of the few people that he hired mm-hmm. to teach because he understood I could take care of myself and do relevant things when what the group was doing was outside of my purview. Or outside yeah. of my my scope, yeah. my postural so it, scope. It required you to be resourceful and totally. to learn as much as possible about alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get tactical. Sure. Here I am, a brand new yoga teacher. I'm going to plan my new classes. What's the roadmap? Okay. Let's start before planning your class. And let me tell you something that deep down you know but you don't really know just yet, which is talking and teaching for 30 or 60 or 90 minutes is a long time. Oh my God. My mind was blown the first time time. I taught a yoga class. I've said this a bunch of times, like, right? Like most movies these days are like two hours, but like pretty much any movie made in the eighties is 90 minutes on the dot. It's like 89 or 90 minutes. So what I tell people all the time is like, go home, put on Say Anything or, you know, whatever, like whatever 80s movie, right? Right. And then mute it and just start talking. Oh, my gosh. And don't stop That's really smart. I've never heard this before. Until it's over. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And also, that's about the amount of feedback you're going to get. It's like talking to (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, because so, people have their heads down. I yeah. mean, they're not supposed to be validating yeah. and you the people, whole time. And people might be listening and be like, well, you shouldn't be talking the whole time. You should be giving space. I know. I know. But, so go ahead and talk. And then every 10 seconds, take a 10-second break. I don't care. You get the point. Yeah. Right? So my point on this is not to scare you, but is to say, this is this brings up the first to me key concept of teaching, which is you have to go in there and have a clear sense of what you want to teach and you need to build a roadmap from that. So meaning like, don't just try to teach and talk randomly for 90 minutes. You wanna go in there and have something specific. I'm being just very top level. When you teach, when you create a sequence, you need something that you're actually trying to teach when you're teaching that sequence. Mm-hmm. You need to have something. And that something could be physical, so many different mental, things. spiritual. So many okay. different things, right? And I'll, I'll give a couple of quick thoughts, right? Okay. But the most obvious thing, especially for new students, is a peak pose. 
Right, right. right. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that I structure teaching is not at all limited to peak post sequencing. I think peak post sequencing is really good and profoundly limited. But the concept, the the concept that underlies peak post sequencing is you have a muse. You have something to work backwards from. Yeah. Right. You have something that you're actually trying to teach. So whether or not that thing that you want to teach in class is postural, right? Meaning I want to help my students in this class. This class is not just going to focus on Ordva Dhanurasana. This is going to be a comprehensive balanced class. But in my mind, we are going to kind of be slowly but surely preparing for Ordva Dhanurasana throughout the whole practice, right? Because in my mind that I have something to come back to. You having something to anchor your teaching in is for you. It's not just for your students. It's for you. Because if you start to talk for 90 minutes, you're going to go down all sorts of weird pathways. Or you're just going to run out of things to say. For me, I don't run out of things to say. I go down weird pathways, right? (laughs) But so point on this is like, you want to be able to have something that you can come back to. You remind yourself, oh, Urdvids on your asana, right? Or, Or it can be even more broad. It can be something like, I'm teaching outer hip openers today. And yeah, I'm going to do a little bit of everything. I'm going to do a balanced comprehensive sequence, but I'm going to skew a little bit more heavily towards outer hip opening and core strengthening. Or you could go even more conceptual, right? You could go, okay, the main thing that I want to practice, the main thing I want to anchor my teaching in today is helping people let go of excess mental, physical, and emotional tension, right? So in your practice or in your class, like maybe you have a little softer touch, maybe you're in poses a little bit longer, maybe you use more passive technique, maybe you encourage people to lengthen the exhalations, maybe you talk about, hey, you know, we all get uptight, we all get frustrated, we all have stuff to let go of, so you're here, you're going to work hard, but whatever's whatever you're holding on to, just soften it, let it go. Mm-hmm. So, so there are many different inroads, right? And that's more technical, but having a sense of I'm working with a specific concept and I am reinforcing in a specific set of teachings will help you stay on track. Now, having said that, just to clarify, this does not mean that you're asking people to go in every time with like, a philosophical theme and a this theme and a that like I, f- I feel like there's other systems that have been very and this is not I'm not saying this in a in a pejorative way totally. but that have been more formulaic like you're gonna go in you're always gonna teach a philosophical theme to set the tone that's not what you're saying no because I think that <clears throat> that doesn't work for everyone yeah so one of the ways that I kind of lay this out and I'm gonna be brief on this because this is like This is a very long and deep conversation in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But I think about in any given class, you have four primary doors that you can open up. One of the doors is postural, right? It's physical. It's like in this class, we're going to focus a little bit more on your hips or your core or external rotation of the femur or downward facing dog, right? Another door that we can open up is mental attributes, meaning I, in this class, really want to focus on helping you stay focused or helping you observe your inner narrator 
or helping you reframe your perception of your own physical limitations so that instead of you seeing them as a limitation, you see them as actually an asset for you as a teacher, because you're going to be more relatable and you can help people with similar challenges, right? Another door would be the overt spiritual door, meaning in this class, I'm going to talk about Patanjali and Ahimsa. In this class, I'm going to talk about, about Patanjali and X, Y, or Z. In this class, I'm going to focus on some of the teachings of Buddha Dharma, right? And then the fourth door is the door of emotional attributes, right? That's kind of a little bit more the door of, in this class, we're going to really work on resilience. Or in this class, we're going to really work on decreasing negative self-talk. Or in this class, we're going to work on blah, blah, blah. So depending on the teacher, the skill level, the interest level, you might incorporate all of those things. You might incorporate one of those things. For me as a teacher, I usually try to incorporate two or three of those things in any given class. I'm most known for my physicality because that's what I typically lead with. I lead with physicality in a physical class. But I'm always thinking about mental attributes, emotional attributes, and the spiritual container of the yoga tradition. Mm -hmm. But I don't, but I try not to make it too formulaic and say, okay, everyone, you need to have one physical theme, one philosophical theme, and one spiritual theme. Because I don't think, I don't think that that works for everyone's personality type. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Okay. Second kind of big key, and it's, it's just so completely tags on to the first one, um, which is when you're sequencing, it's really helpful to use what's called backwards design or reverse engineering, meaning you simply figure out what you want to teach and you work backwards from there, mm -hmm. right? If, if you think about it like this, a sequence is a progression, right? It's not, not even... Not even just in yoga, but if you think about like, what is a sequence in life? It's a progression of events. So if I'm going to create a sequence, which is essentially a progression of events, it's a progression of poses, a progression of teachings, a progression of readings, whatever it is, it's a progression of stuff. I want to know what direction am I leading you? So similarly, like, if I go out, I can say, okay, I'm going to go for a nice long walk and I'm going to kind of meander, but eventually I'm going to arrive at the beach or eventually I'm going to arrive at a friend's house or eventually I'm going to arrive at a forest. It's kind of having a sense when you sequence that you're trying to help students learn something. You're trying to help illumine something. And you have a lot of choices. The way that we can walk to the beach, we can walk the most direct way, the most scenic way, a more tangential way, like how you arrive at Urdhva is pretty open-ended. There's a lot of different ways you can arrive at focusing on Urdhva or opening your heart or whatever it is. Uh -huh. But you want to make sure that you have a good, clear understanding of where you want to take your students and what you want to teach them before you teach them. 
Right. And if you don't know the answer to those questions, you need to take a big step back mm-hmm. and, and just do the self-reflection and own what it is that you're trying to teach when you're teaching yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's one more thing I kind of want to throw in there, which is I never want to curtail spontaneity. And, and I never want to curtail kind of the artistic impulse of, hey, in the first 15 minutes of class, I thought we were going here, but now I see something else happen and I pick up a different thread. There are so many times that the first 10 minutes of my class is, it, it reveals something to me and I just decide I'm going to go a completely different way. But what I say to people all the time is having a plan and working backwards from that plan and getting excited to go down a different path is way different than mm-hmm. having no plan at all. That's true. It's That's way true. different. That's true. Because it, because if you're teaching a class and you want to teach backbends or whatever it is, and then for whatever reason, the muse strikes you or you see something in class or you realize as you're teaching, like, Actually, you're really excited about this other thing. If you have reasonable momentum and excitement and reason to like get off the beaten path, get off the beaten path. You know, that's where so much creativity and and like serendipitous moments occur. Yeah. So I don't want us to think like, okay, we have to like be these like- <laughs> And stifle, you know, it's not saying stifle your creativity and be rigid and just only stick to, you know, ex- the exact prescribed- Thing you've thought about but so there's creativity within the structure but the structure has to be there to begin with yeah i mean we're not really even yeah so so not even necessarily structure yet but like an idea that's yeah 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 like yeah. a sense like a sense of so so and I, i'm going to kind of pick this up again later but i i think another skill that i have as a yoga teacher is i'm super resistant to things I'm going to explain why why I think this is a skill. I'm really resistant to things. And I can be really defensive about things. And I'm not super open to change all the time. <laughs> you're such, you're like a barrel of monkeys. A barrel of monkeys. But that's the same with other people too, right? So I do a pretty good job, I think, of understanding and anticipating some of the resistance that what I'm saying might generate. Meaning... If I'm saying to everyone, hey, I think you need to have a plan, I guarantee there are listeners that are stepping back saying, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a little bit of a plan, but I gotta—I like to see what's happening in the room. I need to be spontaneous. I need to be creative. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is I would understand that response. response. Mm-hmm. And so I'm countering that response by saying, hey, nothing that I'm talking about should at all dissuade you from following your own path. But again, following your own, like finding a new trail that arises is really different than having no trail in the first place. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Third thing, okay, Um, which is details and technique are really, really, really hard to combine with flow. They just are. Mm -hmm. So... It's very helpful to have some phases of class that are more dedicated to just flow 
and other phases of class that are more dedicated to just details and postural technique, mm -hmm. right? And I'm gonna, again, like, I'm gonna throw out, because it's come up in the last podcast and this podcast, both my background with Ashtanga yoga and Iyengar yoga, okay? Now, Iyengar yoga is not the primary place that I would go to to look for flow. No. <laughs> and Ashtanga yoga is not the primary place I go to to look for postural technique and detail. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that Ashtanga yoga has no technique and detail and Iyengar yoga has no flow or no continuity. It's to say that different environments prioritize different techniques mm -hmm. and they've evolved and focused on different things. And so they have relatively, I'm not even gonna say weaknesses, they have relatively different strengths. But what happens now, and you, you remember when, when Mati Ezrati passed and I told you, and I wrote a thing about it saying, I think Mati is probably the most influential yoga teacher of the last 50 years. Yeah. And I don't hear, here's why I don't think most people get that, right? It's because she wasn't pop, commercially popular to the same degree that some other people were. But, and Mati's not the only person that did this, okay? But what you see is that prior to, for the most part, prior to Chuck and Mati and the evolution of the original yoga works, Ashtanga yoga and Iyengar yoga were completely different fields. Never the twain shall meet. Completely different fields. Mm -hmm. But now, since Mati, pretty much everyone in contemporary vinyasa yoga also is teaching technique, is I, also teaching postural technique. I 100% agree right? with you. And I just want to say one thing yeah. <clears throat> because I, I love her so much. And I every time I would meet up with her, maybe ex with the exception of the last few times, but early on when I me would meet up with her, she would, in her signature direct way with her like sparkle in her eye, she would say, there's too much fundamentalism in the yoga world. Fair enough. Everybody thinks they're right. Everybody thinks their way is right. But really, if you combine all the different thought processes, you get the best of everything. Totally. And that's what she tried to do. Totally. Yeah. And she was so influent. Like to me, the kind of the met one of the measures of influence is you've been influenced by something, but you don't you even, even know, know it. it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And everyone in contemporary yoga, I guarantee you, is influenced by Masyasrati. Yeah. And most people don't know it. Yes. Yeah. Right? Because their teacher was influenced by but the idea that you would combine postural technique. Mm -hmm. And then also flow mm -hmm. is was is completely different, right? Remember in the Ashtanga world, for the most part, they just count. It's not that there isn't a high evolution of technique. There is. Right. But it's not communicated the same way. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a primary point of emphasis. Right. Right. So my point on this is right now, we're trying to do something that's difficult. Mm -hmm. We want our students to move and breathe and flow and feel better and love this class and love us and learn how the scapula moves and downward facing dog and how the humerus rotates and downward facing dog and what to do with the base of the big toe and how to stay safe. 
So my point on all this is it's very difficult to combine the two, technique and flow. So the best thing to do is in any given class, you're going to combine them throughout, but there's gonna be some phases where you're not really trying to flow that much and you're really trying to teach people specific technique. And then other phases of class where you're not trying to tell them everything to do in every pose, you're just letting them move and breathe and develop the flow. Mm -hmm. And under, kind of understanding that interplay is really important. Okay. Yeah. So another thing to think about is you want your verbal cueing to as often as possible relate to the focus of your sequencing. Right. Okay. So I'm going to say it again, which is, or I'll give an example, which is if I am mostly focusing in class, if I'm working backwards from teaching my students forearm balance, forearm balance and forearm balance modifications and forearm balance combinations. Again, I'm going to do a little bit of everything. It's going to be a balanced, comprehensive flow class, but I have in the back of my mind that we're going to target forearm balance. We're going to work on it, so forth and so on. Then that entire class, I'm giving the majority of my cues to the hands, to the elbows, to the shoulders, and to the core. Mm -hmm. Because those are the parts of the body that are going to be most at play mm -hmm. in forearm balance. So I don't want to be, I'm not going to tell my students the whole class, like what to do with their hips and what to do with their femur and what to do with their hamstrings and what to do with blah, blah, blah. It's not that those things aren't relevant. It's that to be a really good teacher, you cannot be a generalist. Mm. You have to be willing to, in any given, and what I mean is in any given class, do not just always feel like you need to give the same three generic cues to every posture. It's a waste of everyone's time. When you're teaching raw beginners, you have to give some kind of general cues to the whole body. But if you want students to learn what the scapula do in forearm balance, you can't wait until forearm balance. It's too late. Mm -hmm. If you want to teach the students what to do with their anterior core and forearm balance, you can't wait till it's forearm balance. You have to actually, with your cues, be preparing and establishing the muscle memory. So you want to be, in a lot of ways, in down dog and up dog and all of the other postures that you're teaching that are going to lead up to forearm balance. Focus your cueing on the actions and the regions of the body that you're gonna focus on in that class. From like pose one, or would you say after sun salutation? For me, it's pose one. Okay. But I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah. So it might not be from pose one. Mm -hmm. And then how? when do you get to the point where you are concerned that you're repeating yourself too much? Almost never. And here's why. Say, never. Here's why. <laughs> Um, which is number one, I know that that's the job of a yoga teacher. A teacher of anything has to repeat themselves a lot. Yes, true. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just the truth. Mm -hmm. The second thing is I am much less likely to repeat myself over time if I am focusing more on details. I'm much more likely to repeat myself if I'm not focusing on details. Meaning, 
if I'm not tailoring my verbal cues to the focal points of my sequence, then I guarantee you I'm just going to fall back on the same generic cues I use in every single class. Yeah. You know, and there's so many people, this happens all the time in my trainings that are like, you know, I've been saying blah, 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 blah in this post. Does that even make sense? And I'm like, you tell me. And But my, the point is, is like a lot of times as teachers, we're just saying things because we've heard those things and we haven't really thought through those things. And that's not really the world's biggest deal. We're all going to do that. But you will keep just saying those things. If you're just teaching a class and you're not and you don't have focal points and you don't tailor your verbal cues to those focal points, the way you teach Warrior One, I guarantee you is going to be the exact same way that you taught it yesterday and tomorrow and last year and next year and forever and always. Mm -hmm. Rotate, square the hips forward, lift the bottom ribs, mm -hmm. shine the heart forward, mm -hmm. stretch you, through the fingertips. I don't think this is a conversation for this podcast, but when you teach the longer form of sequencing, do you talk about how many focal points to have? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And again, it's going to scale, right? It's going to scale. I I'm a huge fan of simplicity. Like, Simple things executed well are kind of my thing. So I always want teachers to kind of not underestimate themselves, but when you're learning to juggle, like start with one or two balls and then maybe add a third when it's time to add a third. Don't start with five and then have to pull away. So it's, it's always better to start with fewer focal points and naturally scale up, then start with too many ingredients and, and just confuse the hell out of yourself and just start to default to something else. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Next thing, and we already talked a little bit about this, but it's really important that you have some sort of sequencing framework or what I call a sequencing template. It's really important that you have a sequencing framework that you can apply in every single environment that you teach. Now, it might be different from style to style. So there's a lot of people who teach flow and yin and restorative and blah, blah, blah. Your yin sequence template and your flow sequence template, they're not going to be the same because they're different modalities with different intentions, right? So the template that you use has to be relevant to the modality that you're teaching. But it's really important to have, I don't like the word formula, but it's really important to have a formula. It's important to have a formula or a blueprint or a template or a recipe or a structure, like some sort of infrastructure that you teach from consistently, right? Now, I don't want it to be overly scripted. I don't think that, look, there are a lot of people that teach the same sequence every single day for years. And there's a lot of people that practice the same sequence every single day for years and it works for them and that's great. And if it does, that's, that's amazing, right? So many of us, we have so many other unknowns in our life. They just wanna do the same sequence day in and day out, yep. totally fine. But if that's not the case, then you want to have more creativity and freedom and yet 
it's still very helpful to have a fundamental structure. So meaning like, I'm not going to lay mine out, but like you start with seated meditation and then you do sun salutations. And then after you do your sun salutations, you do your backbends. And then after your backbends, blah, 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 blah. Having some sort of loose structure, even if it's only a loose structure, is going to help your students have a more consistent experience in your class. When I say consistent experience, I don't even necessarily mean that it's the same class and the same focus week in, week out. But when you have a more consistent structure that you use or a consistent template that you use, then the students are going to experience a more consistent tone, tempo, and like intensity. Mm-hmm. They're going to kind of kind of get a sense of like, oh, class usually begins slow with a little bit of opening and then it builds and it has this nice long cool down, right? So I have specific master template that I teach, but I, I'm not even trying to sell that right now. I'm just trying to sell the concept of it's really important for you as a teacher to have some sort of consistent consistent general order. And then you can have a lot of creativity within that order. Yeah. So let's just talk for a moment really briefly because about the ways that the having this structure are beneficial. So it's beneficial for you as a teacher because... It's beneficial for you as a teacher because you are much less likely to get spaced out. You're much less likely to not kind of know where you are in terms of time and tempo and intensity of class. Mm -hmm. It's much more easy for you as a teacher to work backwards from a set of focal points, whether those are postural or philosophical or both or whatever, because you know generally where you are in class. It's more beneficial for you as this, for your students because it's going to bring them consistency. It's going to bring them consistency. Yep. Okay. And it's it's really difficult. Some students might like that this Monday you focused on back bends and next Monday you're focused on forward bends and the following Monday you're going to teach Bird of Paradise and then the following Monday you're going to press the handstand, whatever it is. Some students might like the content to change regularly, but I can pretty much guarantee they do not like the tone, the tempo, or the intensity to change. Okay. And when you have a consistent template, you have a consistent amount of time that you spend doing salutations, a consistent amount of time that you spend doing backbends, a consistent amount of time that you spend cooling down, a consistent amount of time doing X, Y, or Z, which means the feeling that the student is going to get, not the content, but the feeling that the student is going to get is more consistent week over week. Right. Okay. Okay. So tagging on to this, right, just kind of like, it's another point, but it's completely related, which is the structure or the template or the blueprint of the sequence should not interfere with your creativity. It should organize it and ground it. Mm -hmm. I I think that it's really hard to be creative in a vacuum. It's much easier to be creative 
when you're trying to solve for something. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to be creative when you're trying to troubleshoot something or when you're trying to figure something out Mm -hmm. or like those uh, like silly chef shows where they get, you know, they have like the four contestants or whatever. And then they all get like a box of random ingredients. Right. And they have to do like a dessert, an appetizer, a main. It's kind of random, but it's not completely random. Yeah, there's a, there's like a structure. There's a structure because everyone has to make three things and everyone has to use these ingredients. And so having that consistent or having those parameters actually facilitates greater creativity. I think when you if you don't, if you don't have some structure, you are much more likely to be less creative and much more likely to more or less teach the same thing week in and week out. You might change the order of this pose into that pose, but it's it's unlikely that you're going to select a lot of different topics. So how about if people are listening to this and feeling like, okay, I'm a little overwhelmed. I don't do any of these things. Where? What's your advice? Okay, so this brings up, fortunately, my second to last point, which is... Please don't feel an urgency to change anything. Not an urgency to change anything, okay? You know, being my wife, that I have a particular ability to overreact from time to time. Everyone does. Yeah. But I would say that there are certain ways in which I can overreact. One of the ways that I am really good at overreacting is when I feel like, I'm not doing something professionally the way I should be doing it Mm -hmm. because I get insecure. Mm -hmm. I get frustrated. I put a lot of pressure on myself to be a good yoga teacher. And so if I start to feel like I'm getting something wrong or I need to do something different, I will overreact. And so what I want to tell everyone is please don't follow my footsteps on that. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Don't overreact to this conversation. Slow, progressive, integrated changes to the way you teach is almost always preferable to something quick and sharp and radical. Yeah. Because you don't want to throw yourself off base. You don't want to throw your students off base. And taking on new skills as a yoga teacher, like anytime you learn a new skill or anytime you work on a new thing, it's going to be a little clumsy anyways. So when you start to develop new sequencing skills or cueing skills or adjustment skills or whatever it is, take it slowly. Take it slowly. Don't don't think, oh, what I'm hearing is right and it's different from what I'm doing. Therefore, what I'm doing is wrong and I need to change. Right. Right. Or also don't outwardly dismiss something that you're not doing. Right. But just take it into consideration. Take your time. And make the smallest, most convenient modifications that almost no one notices. And the ones that make most feel like make most sense to you. Totally. Yeah. You know what? You know those situations where someone says something that you already know. Right. Yes. You're like, oh, yes. Yeah. And all you needed to do, like my voice or your voice or someone else's voice communicates to the voice that was already in your head. If any of these things are already in your head, 
then you know it's time to slowly and progressively make that change. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And then I think the final thing that I want to say is there are a lot of ups and downs as a yoga teacher. But I genuinely think you will be satisfied as a yoga teacher to the degree that you feel you're conveying the essence of your message as a yoga teacher. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, so for example, okay, I like when there's a lot of people in my class. I don't like when a lot of people don't show up for class. Like I go up and down like the weather too. However, there have been so many times in my life where I taught a class when there were a lot of people, but I just kind of on the inside didn't feel great about the class. Hmm. I just I just felt like, yeah, it just kind of felt lousy. Like I just felt like just- not even not even a sense of like, oh, woe is me, people didn't like it. Right, but, but more a sense of like, I didn't feel clear today. I didn't feel connected today. It's like when you're in a group and you're just not, you're just not, you just don't feel connected. It's not gelling. No, yeah. it doesn't gel. It feels, it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And you know, whatever, that's life. We get over it. Yeah. Similarly, like I have taught a lot of classes where at first I was kind of bummed out because there weren't as many people or I was super excited for so-and-so to show up and so-and-so didn't come and blah, blah, blah. And, but I taught that class and I felt really connected. Like I felt connected. I settled into both the students that were there, but also to the feeling of what it is that I want to convey as a yoga teacher. Like, you know? Yeah. And so this is where teaching really is a matter of sequencing, not just teaching. Sequencing is a matter of Dharma, right? Dharma means that which supports. So as a yoga teacher, when you are interested in Urdhvadhanyarasana or whatever it is, when you're like, yeah, I'm totally interested in this pose. Like I've been working on it. It feels good. Like it's an interesting way to experience my body. And at the same time, I've been putting a lot of pressure on myself lately. So I want to use this as an opportunity to let people know, hey, work hard, but let go of the results. When you actually want to communicate those things and you communicate those two things, like your excitement for Urdhvadhanyarasana and also it's time to work hard and let go of the results. If you feel those things and you communicate those things to the best of your ability in your sequence, you will be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I pretty much guarantee it. Mm-hmm. And if a lot of people are in class and they love you and they throw flower garlands at your feet, that'd be so weird. But you know what I mean? Like, great. Mm-hmm. But if there's just a couple of people and you feel connected to what you're teaching and you teach it to a degree that you feel like you did your best and you can let go, that feels really good. Right. And to me, almost nothing feels worse than filling 90 minutes of time when I don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of a... a- a really simplified way to say it is be true to yourself. Yeah. And yeah. it's similar with writing and creating any kind of writing content and even marketing content. It's like when I have a message that I feel really strongly about and really passionate about and when I'm able to convey it in my own voice, in my own way, and uh, it feels meaningful to me, that feels great. It doesn't matter how many people like it or pass it on by. That's part of the process of 
these jobs, right? Is it's a lot of it is self-expression and helping people in the way that is most authentic to you and your, your Dharma. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, should we stop there? Let's do it. Okay. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, I so appreciate it. If you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, it always does help more people find the show. If you are interested in finding out more about the sequencing program and or signing up, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash sequencing, or you can go to the show notes page and I will put a link on there and you can go to the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 236. We're at 236. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.